0: Hi, I'm my church.: Hi, I'm me Church What are you reading? Uh, I don't think it's for you. Let, let me see that.: Oh, my, these are ministry opportunities, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about this new idea of worshiping one and serving one. Uh, the good thing is is that I can serve in a ministry, and I don't miss the worship time. So which ministry are you going to get involved in?: uh, I was thinking about the children's ministry. I mean, that's really where the future is.: I love children. Wow I thought you said you love children. I, I do. Just from a distance. Well listen, there's other areas of ministry you can get involved in. I mean, there's okay. technical ministry, there's worship arts. Worship arts. <laughs> no way. You ought to hear me sing. Well, good morning. We're in a series called Intentional Life, and let me tell you what it's all about in case you were here last Sunday. One of the things that I've thought about through the years is um, I would love so much to get my life in a zone where it's all clicking. I don't know about you, but um, in my Christian life, one of the real struggles that I have is I kind of stop and start. I mean, get something going well, one area going well in my life, and then something else falls apart. And I keep waiting for this this integrated Christian life where it's all clicking and all working. Do you ever feel like that? I mean, just go ahead and raise your hand. Unscrew the halo for a moment. Do you ever feel like me? I mean, I would just love to get it all clicking. If somebody could be here and you just say, well, Mark, I just, man, I just walk with God and I never have an off day and I'm just super spiritual and all that. And we'll try to see if you lie about anything else, too, if you stay here long enough. But here's the deal. There is a way to get into a zone where things begin to work out well for you. And Let me, let me tell you what we're using for an example. If you take your Bible and, and you start reading through it, which I hope you do, And you start in Genesis, and you go all the way through the history of Israel, and then you go into the New Testament, and then the the history of when Jesus was on the earth, and the disciples, and then you go into the church age, and you start reading about all the churches that were formed, you know, after Jesus resurrected. Here's what you're going to discover. You're going to discover that everybody in the Bible pretty well struggled with that, whether it was the Israelites, or it was, you know, the disciples, because they were up and down, and Peter was all over the page. And then you read about the churches, and man, Paul was always having to write to them, straighten out all these issues that they had. But on occasion, you reach a spot where you can see God's people really getting into a zone where everything is clicking and everything is working out. It doesn't mean that they don't have anything bad in their lives. It's just that they're in a zone of things working out. When you study the Old Testament, the study of the children of Israel, the Israelites, there was one period of time, one golden age, where everything was clicking. And it came about in the life of a leader named Joshua. And during that book, if you read the book of Joshua, what you discover is the children of Israel, they encountered a golden age. They lived a charmed life in a promised land. And so what I want to do in this series for, for eight weeks, we started last Sunday. What I want to do in the series is I want us to delve into the book of Joshua and look for keys. Look for telltale signs of what it was about this generation that allowed them to get it right, to get life in the zone. If you're here, if you're here last, last Sunday morning, I gave you the first one. And that was that Joshua stepped up to the mic. He and his generation said, okay, God, whatever it is that you want from us, we're ready to do it. And that hadn't been the case prior to that. But Joshua's generation said, here we are. We're volunteering. We're stepping up. We're not wimping out. We're not backing down. We don't know exactly what it is that we're signing up for. But, but we're ready to go. This morning, I want to give you the second key to living life in the zone. And it's so important. i got to tell you, I, 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 I've been waiting for this series for months. And I have known I'm sitting on Dynamite. What I'm going to share with you this morning is absolute dynamite. This key revolutionizes every environment. It restores homes. It, it, it causes businesses to turn around. It, 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 it completely changes relationships between parents and children. It's building to friendships, and it's so powerful in a church. You show me an environment, and you put this key in place, and you plug it in, and I'll show you an environment that's about to be revolutionized to do incredible things. So I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm always nervous. I'm a shy person by nature, and standing up here in front of all you guys with the cameras on scares me to death. And I'm always thinking, you know, I'm going to trip over my words, and I'm going to garble them up, but I'm going to tell you something today. Even if I do a poor job delivering this message, this is dynamite. The things I'm going to share with you today are just life revolutionizing. So I don't have any fear standing up here before you. This is powerful stuff. The question is, will you employ it in your life? Now, let's go back to what we covered last Sunday morning. God said to Joshua, the time has come for you. Moses is dead you know, the Israelites, they wimped out on God. They got 11 days away, you know, from promised land where God was going to take them to live in houses they didn't build and eat from vineyards they didn't plant. And, and God had just, you know, brought them out of slavery. And, and uh, you know, here they were, 3 million people, and they were slaves in the land of Egypt. And the only thing God had to do was to get, you know, 3 million people out of uh, Egypt, And that meant Pharaoh losing his slave labor base, and that was going to stand the economy on his head. But then God made him 10 deals that he couldn't refuse, and the Israelites are out and they're in the wilderness. And 11 days away, they're just right there at Canaan, and they get to this place called Kadesh Barnea, and they wimp out on God, and they decide they don't want to go over to the promised land because they're scared of giants. And for 38 years, they go in circles in the wilderness. And after, after this whole generation dies off, we saw that God said, Listen, you didn't have the courage. You didn't, have the, you didn't have the intestinal fortitude to take me up on my challenge to go into Canaan. I would have helped you. I would have taken you through there, but you wouldn't take me up on my challenge. And God's saying, okay, everybody over 20 is going to die here in the wilderness. God just marched them in circles for 38 years until that generation died off. But at that point, when Moses died, God came to Joshua. He said, you're the new man. You're the new leader, and the time has come for you. And by, by extension, he was saying, the time has come for your people to take me up on my challenge. And Joshua said, all right, here we are. That's key number one. You know, if you don't ever tell God yes, you can never live in the zone. Forget about it. You know, I'm not trying to be negative, but I'm just saying if, if you wimp out on God, when God puts something on your plate, when God sets something out there before you, you know, there's this wonderful opportunity, and the Holy Spirit's just kind of whispering to you, saying the time has come for you. If you don't take God up on that challenge, you'll never get to live in the zone. You may bump along the bottom, but you'll, you'll, ne- you'll never live life in the zone but Joshua said okay don't know what this is going to mean I'm scared to death you're asking me to do something that my boss Moses couldn't pull off and he had had lived in Moses' shadow long enough to know what an awesome leader Moses was and if Moses wasn't able to get the people across the finish line what did Joshua this untested kid think that he could do but God came along and said Joshua the time has come for you and that's going to happen in your life and in my life there are going to be prime moments where God's going to come along and say it's your turn you remember I talked about the slide last week You know, you just lay down, you enjoy the ride, you just go down with God, it's the ride of a lifetime, it's worth doing. But that's the key, that's the first key, doesn't stop there. Because what happens next, you know, when you say God, yes, I'll do what you want me to do, then what comes next is very, very important, because I'm talking to some of you here today, and you said yes to one of God's challenges, but then the second key never got into place, and you never really went anywhere. So it's very important to understand the second key. Before I get into it, though, let me just tell you this. I'm a typical baby boomer. I have to have music behind me to everything I do. My life has a soundtrack, all right? You know, if you, if you could find, my, if you could find my, you know, my iPod, you would discover all kinds of music on my iPod, all genres, you know, I mean, just everything you can imagine. Because, my, you know, behind everything I do, there's music. I get in the car, I, I put the music on. There's always music behind me, even when I'm talking to people. If you're in my office, chances are you're going to hear my computer playing music. But I don't know if you're like me or not, but I, I, can be, I can be working along, and there's some music in the background, and, and it's just kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, one of my favorite songs comes on. You know what I say at that point? Turn it up. Turn it up. I mean, I'll crank it up. When one of my favorite songs comes on, turn it up. What you're going to discover is God is something like that, because God hears a lot of conversation, doesn't he? I mean, six billion people on the planet, a lot of people singing a lot of songs, but every once in a while, somebody starts singing a song, and God says, turn it up. And here's Joshua coming along. And like, like, like Lance let us in last week, Joshua starts singing, have thine own way, Lord. And the Lord says, turn it up. Let's read about it, okay? If you have your Bibles this morning, Joshua 1, verse 6. God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. For you will lead my people to possess all the land I swore to give their ancestors. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Have you noticed that God has found the volume switch? He's saying, okay, you've said yes to me, but turn it up. Be strong and courageous. Obey all the laws Moses gave you. Do not turn away from them, and you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of the law continually. Meditate on it day and night so you may be sure to obey all that's written therein. Only then will you succeed. I command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, I don't know if you counted with me, but there are three times in that text that God said to Joshua, turn it up. You've said, I'll I'll do it, but God is saying, now you're going to have to be strong. And the Hebrew word for that means getting stronger every day. In effect, it's the same word that we get from, from hard, for from muscular hardness. God is saying to Joshua, I want you to get tougher every day. I want you to get stronger every day. I want you to build some muscle every day. And then he said, I want you to be courageous. I want you to act bold. Three times. You know, Joshua's saying, Here I am, have that own way, Lord. And God's saying, Okay, Joshua, turn it up. I want you to act courageous. I want you to get tougher every day. But now, something I want to show you that's just absolutely powerful, and I hope you you can key in on this this morning because this is what transforms environments. If you were to move over to Joshua 10, you would see Joshua said to them, Okay, who's, who's them? That's the Israelites, that's the people. Joshua's saying to them, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. God said to Joshua, I want you to get tougher and act courageous. Joshua said to the people, I want you to act strong, and I want you to be courageous. And look at this. This is so cool. Joshua one sixteen. They answered, Joshua, we'll do whatever you command us, and we will go wherever you send us. So be strong and courageous. Can you see what's going on here? I mean, it's no wonder this was the golden age. It's no wonder these people went through Canaan like a hot knife through butter. God came to the leader and God said, Joshua, I want you to get tougher every day, and I want you to act bold. And then Joshua went to the people and he said, hey, here's the deal. I want you to get stronger every day, and I want you to act bold. And the people turned around to Joshua and they said, we want you to get stronger, and we want you to act bold. All those things that happen, happen in a climate of radical encouragement. Think about the word encouragement for just a moment. The root word of that is courage. courage is, encouragement is infusing somebody with courage. And God said to Joshua, I want you to act bold. I want you to be courageous. Joshua said to the people, act bold and act courageous. And the people said, hey, we're with you. And, and basically what they were saying is, you know, we know that generation that died in the wilderness. We know they wimped out. And they wouldn't follow their leader. And, and because, of, because of that, you know, they just wandered around in circles. But they said, you know, we saw a lot of that. I mean, we were kids at the time, and we saw what happened, and we felt what it was like when we were going in circles in the wilderness. So, Joshua, we want you to understand something. You don't have to wet nurse us. You don't have to pat us on the back and burp us. We're ready to go. Whatever you want us to do, that's what we'll do. And that's the kind of climate everything happened in in this golden age, a climate of radical encouragement. Now, why is it important? And by the way, forgive me for breaking the sentence for a moment. Let me just tell you this. That's what transforms families. You show me a husband and a wife who are saying to each other, be courageous, act bold. And parents are saying to the kids, act bold, be courageous, be strong. And the kids are saying to the parents, go for it. You show me a home where there's radical encouragement and I'll show you a golden family. You show me a business. You show me a business where people are not scared. They don't live in a climate of fear and, you know, covering your back and that kind of thing. You show me a climate where people are radically encouraged, where the boss is encouraging the team, and the team is encouraging the boss, and the team is encouraging each other. They're not trying to steal somebody else's job. You show me a place where there's radical encouragement, and I'll show you a business that will take it off the graph. That's, that's why, now, why, why is this so important? I, I know I'm going to skate through this because I, I probably have six weeks of material to give you in one Sunday this morning. If I, if I seem pumped, it's not just the great coffee out there. I really am this morning. Why was it important for the Israelites to live in a climate of radical encouragement? Let me tell you the, the worst joke I ever tell. Okay, I mean, I just know I shouldn't tell this joke before I tell it. It's an awful joke. But it's just the only thing I can think of that helps me get to this point. There was a story of a very mean woman. I mean, just mean and cantankerous, antagonistic. I mean, she hated everything and everybody, negative about everything. She was just a terror to her husband. And she, you know, she was an awful mother to the five boys. And finally, the old lady died. And so the, the husband and the five boys were pallbearers. They were carrying her out to the grave. And one of the boys tripped, and the casket fell down and hit the ground. It jolted the old lady. She woke up and lived five more years. Just as mean for all those five years. Then she died again. And the husband and the boys were carrying her out to the cemetery. And just as they got to the same spot, the husband said, watch it, boys. This is where we tripped last time. (laughs) I know that's a terrible joke. And if you're going to get offended at me, sorry about that. It's just the only thing I can think of to describe what happened with the Israelites. See, this thing about courage is where they dropped the box last time. They were 11 days away from Canaan. They were on the very border. God had brought them right to the place, the land that flowed with milk and honey, and after a while, the people got gold feet, and they said, well, you know, let's let's send some spies over there. You know, a lot of times we stall when we really just don't want to do it anyway, and this thing about sending spies over into Canaan, God had already said it's a great land. They didn't have to go over and check it out, but basically, they were just buying time, and they said, let's send spies, and they sent 12 spies over there, and 10 of the spies came back and said, oh, it's scary over there. There are giants over there, and and we don't want to go there because we're going to die and we're going to get killed. And, and, our, and, and so they discouraged everybody. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Joshua and Caleb, they were young men. They came back and said, oh, it's an awesome land. God's going to give us the land. We're going to be able to take it. But 10, 10 people outvote two people. And they lost the vote that day. Joshua and Caleb and the Israelites went around in circles in the desert for 38 years. You know, they couldn't go back to Egypt and they couldn't go into the promised land. They were locked in limbo. That's where a lot of you are. Not maybe a lot, but some of you are. You you know, you've been saved, so you don't exactly live, you're not exactly at home, you know, with the people that don't follow Jesus. But you haven't stepped up to the mic yet, and you're not truly following Jesus yet, so you're just sort of wandering in circles in a holding pattern. And that's where they drop the ball. So it was so important that they act courageously at this moment. The second reason why it was important for them to act courageously is this. and, And for those of you who've said, I do want to follow Jesus, this is where it's so important that you sink with me right now. Because see, what happens for a lot of us is we say, yes, Lord, I will do what you want me to do. But it's what happens next that that keeps us from ever being effective. Because if you set out to follow Jesus, things are going to get tough. And you're going to be tested in areas where you've never been tested before. Now think about this. Joshua's out here in the middle of the desert with three million people. They haven't done anything but been slaves in Egypt. And they wandered around in circles in the wilderness. You know, they're going to have to go into this land and fight armies of giants. And they had never fought before. I mean, you know, they, they, they're not exactly battle-hardened troops. For 38 years, they've, they've been doing nothing but digging graves, waiting for people to die. And now they're going to have to go against the most powerful armies in the world. This is why it was so important for them to listen to when God said, I want you to be strong. I, I, I've taken care of this. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go with you. But I want you to be strong, get harder, get tougher every day. And I want you to be courageous. I want you to act boldly. And every one of us needs to hear that today, because you're going to face things tomorrow you've never faced before. So, that's what happened. The things that happen in this book that you and I are going to study about happen in a climate of radical encouragement. Now, everybody's antenna, please go up. Because when I said the word encouragement, I immediately, you know, caught some of you, and you said, "Oh, that's my gig. I am an encourager. When people are down." I go over to them and I pat them on the hand and I say, oh, that's so sad what happened to you. I can't believe people do that to you. That's so sad. I can't believe. I just, I can't believe that those terrible things happen. You poor person. I'm encouraging you. That's not encouragement. That doesn't put encouragement in anybody. That's sympathy. I want to ask you this morning, do you know the difference between encouragement and sympathy? there is a role for sympathy sympathy says i'm feeling what you feel and i know you're hurting and i care that's why have you ever thought about this when 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 something really goes bad and and, and maybe a, a, a there's a death in a family or you know just really this traumatic event have you ever watched people say the dumbest things i have i've probably said some of the dumbest things you know one of the best things you can do if somebody's hurting and, and maybe they've lost a loved one or maybe they've had some sudden reverse on their life? Instead of trying to go explain to them what's happened to them, maybe the best thing to do is just to go to them and say, you know, I love you and I care. I don't know what to say, but I love you. I care about what's going on. I, I'm sympathetic with you. I have pathos that's synced up with your pathos. And I, I'm sorry for what's happened. I just want you to know I'm here and I love you and I care about you. That is sympathy. Encouragement sounds very different. Encouragement puts courage in us. Sometimes encouragement isn't always the easiest thing to hear. Because if I'm knocked down and somebody has hurt me, encouragement says, the game's not over yet. The encouragement says, get up and get back into the game. That's what encouragement is. Now, here's the thing I want you to look at. When, and this goes back in history 38 years. When Moses, Joshua's predecessor, when he sent the 12 spies over into Canaan to check out the land, 10 of the spies came back and offered sympathy to the people. You see that? They offered sympathy. They said, we're going to go over there and get creamed. I know God said this is a good land. we went over there and the giants are big and, and, and we look small to them. And we're going to go over there and we're going to lose our Families and lose everything, we're going to go over and get beaten. And Joshua and Caleb, you remember them? They came back and said, Hey, this is no problem. It's an awesome land. We need to go over there. I, I, I thought it was interesting last week. The 10 spies left out the part about being a good land. Joshua and Caleb left off the part about giants. It's just what they saw. I mean, you know, 10 of the spies went over there and they saw all of Canaan they wanted to see. Joshua and Caleb went over there and they couldn't wait to get back. It's just all in how you look at life. But the thing I want to point out was that the 10 spies sympathized with the people. Now, here's what Moses would say later. I mean, this is what the people said after the report of the ten spies. They murmured and complained in your tents and said, the Lord must hate us. You ever notice where people, you know, where there's this sort of abnormal, unnatural sympathy that goes on? You know, here's this person that's always stroking people and saying, oh, you poor person. And, you know, it's just terrible what people do to you. Isn't it odd how people say, well, everybody hates me in that, in that environment. And that's what they said here. They said, the Lord must hate us. I mean, excuse me. The Lord brought them out of Egypt, gave ten plagues to the Egyptians, opened the Red Sea, gave them manna out of the skies to eat. And these people are saying, "The Lord must hate us." How can we go on now? Here, I, I, I've got this. I've got this highlighted in my notes. This is Deuteronomy one verse twenty-eight. Our scouts have demoralized us with their report. Hey, listen. When, when you talk to people, you're either encouraging them or demoralizing them. I know parents who have demoralized their kids because they're always negative. I know men who demoralize their wives, women who demoralize their husbands, kids who demoralize, take the very heart out of their parents. And that's what the Israelites said. When they heard the report of the ten spies that came back and said it's all bad, they said, man, our scouts have demoralized us. They say that the people of the land are taller, more powerful than we are, and that the walls of their towns rise high into the sky. Now, I want to ask you a question, and, and I don't want to offend anybody here this morning, and, and, but I know I have the potential to do that. And, and probably somebody's going to walk away from here this morning and say, boy, Mark really got under my skin today. But maybe I can help you. I'm talking to somebody here today, and you say, I have the gift of encouragement. But all the time, it's that sympathy, you poor person. It's like you just go around finding anybody who's been hurt, anybody who's had you know, a bad situation. And you say to yourself, I have the gift of mercy. Let me tell you what you are. You're a drug dealer. You're a drug dealer. Because, see, here's the thing. That kind of stuff is a narcotic. And it's true that there is a role for sympathy. There is a place, especially when someone loses a loved one or somebody goes through a very difficult crisis in life. Yes, there is a place to come along and say, I feel what you feel. But I'm talking to some of you, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just kind of like function in an environment waiting to find somebody who has felt like they've been mistreated. And there's always going to be somebody sitting around moping about being mistreated because life mistreats us. But here's the thing you and I need to understand. There are people in our environments who will make a cottage industry out of being mistreated. That will be the reason. They'll have that as a reason why they don't perform at work. They'll have that as a reason why they're not, you know, what they should be as a wife or a husband or a parent or whatever. It's like, man, people always have it in for me, and I don't know why. I mean, people treat me badly. And many times it's just because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing and just natural things happen as a result. But there are some of us who go around looking for that kind of person to stroke them to make them feel better. Now here's the thing. (laughs) You know, with that kind of person, you're, you're, you know, and, and let me, again, I, I know I run the risk of offending somebody here today, and that's the last thing that I wanna do. I wanna help you. But what you need to understand is you can say, well, Mark, you know, I don't know why people just come to me. I mean, people that, you know, feel like they've been offended, the boss got after them, whatever, and they didn't like it, or they just, you know, their husband's just always against them. Those people just find me. They find you for the same reason a junkie finds a drug dealer. They are coming for the next fix. They're coming for you to say, oh, you poor thing. Now, here's the deal. They're never going anywhere, and you're never going anywhere. And my guess is, for some of you who live in that environment, you're starting to get a little tired of it because, after all, it does get old after a while. I've just described some of your marriages. The reason you got married, and and my heart goes out to some of you ladies. If you've married a guy that's always got to have his sympathy stroke, oh, man... They're always out to get me. Oh, man, you just wouldn't believe what happened to me at work today. And, I, you know, man, people cut me off in traffic. I just don't know. Things just don't ever work out right for me. And you got to comfort that poor jerk and make him feel, you know. Man, you want to say, be a man, grow up. And But there are times when, you know, people get married on that basis. Because what happens is an insecure woman sometimes who's, a, who's feeling like, you know, you know, I, I just want to, you know, I, I need somebody who's kind of down below me, somebody so that I can just kind of, you know, make him feel better. And this guy's thinking he's looking for mama, and they get married, and it's just year after year after year of some poor woman having to stroke some loser's ego. You say, Mark, that makes me mad. Change. I'm talking to some of you guys. Be a man. Be strong. Be courageous. I mean, you pump iron, start pumping some spiritual iron. You say, I don't have to, you know, I'm not a loser. God is with me, and God's going to take care of me. And yes, maybe some things that happen in my life are not what I would like for them to be, but I'm not going to sit here and mope and turn my wife into Florence Nightingale. I'm going to be the man I'm supposed to be, and then your wife can start being what God made her to be. You know, there's a huge difference between sympathy and encouragement. Encouragement's not mean, but encouragement's focused on the future. You know, I've been your pastor for for almost over 21 years now. And you're gonna watch things happen in my life and you're gonna see things happen in my life as a leader. And and you'll see some things happen to me that aren't, aren't necessarily pleasant. But I just want you to know something. If you see me get knocked down, don't come to me and stroke my hand and say, poor pastor, it's terrible what that person did to you. Or poor pastor, it's just terrible. You have such a tough job. I I don't, I I don't, that's not going to help me. If you ever see me get knocked down, you just say, hey, Mark, game's not over yet. Hey, Mark, get back into the game. There's a future. God is on the throne. God's going to take care of things. That's what I want to hear because I'm the kind of person who wants encouragement, not sympathy. Sympathy doesn't go anywhere unless it's called for in some very specific environments that I've already talked to you about this morning. So I just want you to think about that today. There is a difference between, sympathy, and encouragement. What happened in Joshua's time? The people lived in a climate of radical encouragement. Now, why is encouragement important? Whether it's with your family or in the workplace or with the church, why is encouragement so important? Three reasons. Number one, job's tiring. Whatever God assigns you to do, there's going to be a point at which you're going to get fatigued. And who was the general, can't remember his name, who said fatigue makes cowards out of us all. I can't remember his it's Patton or whoever, but, but that's a great quote. Fatigue does make cowards out of us. And so you need, you need encouragement because the, the job is tiring. Number two, the opposition's always mean. Whenever you set out to follow Jesus, you got some real mean opposition because Satan will try to stop you. And then number three, here's another reason why you need encouragement. Because success takes a while. Oftentimes doing the right thing won't feel right for a long time. And you're going to be waiting for an outcome that hasn't shown up yet. That's why encouragement at that moment is so very vital. Well, I just want you to think about that. This morning you know it 's very important not to be a drug dealer. well, I want you to, uh, to think about something for just a few moments about something that happened in the life of of a, of a guy named David because it could be that somebody this morning is going to say, "Well pastor, nobody encourages me i 've got a rough life, and nobody encourages me here 's something that you, you need to consider this morning. There was a guy in the Old Testament whose name was David, and uh, he was A young man, he was chosen of God to be the next king of Israel. When he was just a boy, the prophet Samuel, who had the job of anointing the king, came to his neighborhood, and Samuel said the reason he was there was to anoint the next king, which you should understand was Israel already had a king at that time. The man's name was Saul, and Saul was, you know, he wasn't trusting God. He wasn't following God. He was kind of veering off and doing his own thing, and so God had said, I've had enough of Saul, He's not going to be king anymore. The only problem was that Saul was still on the throne, but God was ready to pick a new king. And so he picked the guy who wrote the words that you heard the choir sing this morning. The guy's name was David. And, and David was, at this point, just a shepherd boy. He was a kid, and, and his dad had eight sons, and David was the youngest. And Samuel came to his town and, and with, the, with the word out that he, he was going to anoint someone. And so all of David's brothers got to go to the party, but David got left out in the field because his dad thought eight kids, youngest doesn't stand a chance, he's not going to get anointed. And, the, and his dad left David out there, and the other seven sons were there at the party waiting for Samuel to pour the horn of oil on one of them, and, and uh, you know, the first one of David's brothers, the, the oldest, the tallest, the strongest, best looking, he walked out there, and, and everybody thought, surely this is the guy, even Samuel the prophet thought, yep, this is the guy that God wants me to anoint, he's the oldest, he's good looking, he's tall, and God said, no, don't want him, already got one like him, don't want another. And so the next son passed by, and God said, just keep your horn down at your side, Samuel, don't want him. So Samuel, you can imagine, put yourself in Samuel's place. He's the prophet. He's getting embarrassed now. I mean, he's come to town. He's going to anoint a new king. And he's going through every one of these sons, and he gets to the seventh one, the last kid in line, and God said, don't want him. And Samuel's thinking, what's going wrong here? God sent me here to anoint the next king, and I've gone through seven boys, and God is saying no. And finally Samuel says to Jesse, you have any more kids? Yeah, I got this one boy, but he's the runt of the family. He's the baby. He's out watching the sheep. We knew you didn't want him. Samuel said, nobody eats till he gets here. Well, it must have been a Baptist crowd. Think about that because <laughs> Samuel knew what they were thinking about. He said, we're not going to eat till he shows up. I guarantee you, they caught the next thing smoking and went out and caught David out there in the field and said, come in here. And when David walked in, Samuel saw him. God said, turn it up. That's the one I want. So he poured the horn of oil on David's head, and David, you know, he had the party and then went home. There was only one problem God forgot to tell the rest of the country that Saul wasn't king anymore, because Saul would be on the throne for a long time yet to come. Displeased God. God wasn't with him anymore. He was still king, he was still going to the palace. And here's this boy, David, walking around, still has anointing oil in his hair, but he's going back out to the sheep and if for those of you who know the story and I'm going to have to rush it along this morning but you know David finally goes to work for Saul and he he gets into the military and he kills Goliath you know before he does and then after that he gets to be a general commanding general and Saul starts being envious of him no doubt he's heard the rumor that David has been anointed and God is blessing David and so Saul at that moment swears to kill David and David is on the run for his life and that's where we're going to pick up what we're going to talk about for a few moments because somebody could say Mark I live in a, a place in my life where nobody encourages me my husband doesn't encourage me my wife doesn't encourage me my kids don't people I work with don't encourage me what do I do if nobody encourages me okay have you got this picture of David in your mind because he's running for his life now He he doesn't, you know, the king who loved him doesn't love him anymore. He's envious. He's scared he's going to take his job. And so David's got a price on his head. He's running. And then after a while, there are some guys who come and help David. And we read this in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. Is that your gang? Is that the group you hang with? I mean, the people who were in trouble, they were unhappy and in debt. Those are the people who come to help David. Not exactly a stellar group. So this is David's group, and he's with them. But, but while David is out here with these guys, you know, he's David's kind of triangulating, and he and and he's 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 you know he's running from from Saul, but he's also attacking the Philistines who were also God's enemies, and just a really unusual thing that was happening with David at this point. But the Philistines who were the enemies of God's people came into the camp, and they they took all of these guys' wives and kids and all their possessions, and took them away. And when David and his men come back, they find their camp smoldering, and at that point. David's men, listen to this, David's men wanted to kill him. You talk about a guy being alone at that moment? His own king hates him, has a price on his head. He's got a ragtag group of guys who were discontented in debt and in trouble. And then now those guys are out to get him. David is all by himself. What do you do at that moment? 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. David was greatly distressed, for the men spoke of stoning him, because the souls of them all were bitterly grieved. Each man for his sons and daughters. But look at this. But David encouraged and strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You know, when nobody will encourage you, you encourage yourself. Because God is good and God's promises are true. And when when, when you feel like things are falling apart, you're not by yourself. You can still encourage yourself in God. That's, I believe, where climates of radical encouragement begin. For some of you here today, you say, Mark, I don't know where, where I'm going in life. I don't, I, my life is just in shambles. Start encouraging yourself in God. Start creating, if nothing else, create a climate around yourself of radical encouragement. Now, I know what somebody's thinking this morning. Somebody's thinking, Mark, this sounds like positive thinking to me. This sounds like feel-good stuff. Well, I mean, is there anything spiritual about negative thinking? You would think there is to talk to some Christians. Is there, is there anything good about being negative? You know, positive thinking based on the word of God is called faith. So somebody's going to say, but but isn't this just sort of pop psychology and feel good and, and tell people things are going to happen for the best and all that? It would be if it weren't for two things that we find in Joshua chapter one. God said to Joshua, I want you to be strong and I want you to be courageous, I want you to act bold. And God said two things. Number one, God said, I I don't want you to get very far away from this book. And what you should know is that Joshua didn't have very much of the book, he only had about that much of the Bible. But what he had, God had given through Moses. And God said to Joshua, Don't get very far away from this book. Why is that important? Let me show you. What God is asking Moses, or excuse me, what God is asking Joshua to do is to risk. He is saying, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. Act bold, get stronger, take risks. But the reason why it was so important for him to stay very close to this book was so that Joshua would take the right risks. So that Joshua would be bold in the right ways. I'm talking to some of you who live high-risk lifestyles and you're not following Jesus and it's a dumb thing. You're sleeping with multiple partners, you're abusing substances, You know, you're doing some stuff that's really not right, and it's not good. And it's risky, but it's not what we're talking about when we're talking about acting bold. The Bible will help you to take the right risks. It will help you to do courageous things that will build your life, not risky things that will destroy your life. The second reason why Joshua could act bold is God said, I'm going to be with you. Could I ask you a question? I mean, those of you who've really studied Jesus and you know who he is, is there any place you would be afraid to go if Jesus physically was with you? I don't think I would. If Jesus is with me, If I knew he was standing here with me, I'm talking about the Son of God who stepped out on nothing and created the world. I'm talking about the one who opened blind eyes, the one who opened deaf ears. I'm talking about the one whose power is unchallenged. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. If he was standing by my side, I don't think I would be afraid. Would you? Well, he is here. He said, I mean, God God said to Joshua, hey, I want you to get tougher every day and I want you to act bold. You may not be bold, but I want you to act bold. I want you to act courageous. John Wayne said courage is saddling up when you're scared. And that's true in the Christian life. I mean, courage is acting bold even when you don't feel bold. God is saying to Joshua, I want you to act bold. And he said, don't don't get very far away from this book. And then he said, secondly, I just want you to know that I'm right here with you. And I know that some of you, when you leave this room today, you know it's very pleasant being here. You know you sing with Lance and the team, and, and you listen to me talk about what God is doing. But you're going to leave here, and you're going to go back into a place into a situation that isn't very pleasant. And you're going to walk away, and you say, "Wow, Mark, it sounded so easy when I was sitting in there." You just don't forget that God is with you. I mean, the same God. Who went with Daniel into the lion's den? The same God who just moved back to the Red Sea and created an HOV lane for Moses and the Israelites. The same God who answered prayer and stopped rain from the heavens, and the same God who sent rain. The same God who built this whole thing is with you wherever you go. There's no reason not to act bold. There's no, set, no, no reason to sit around waiting for somebody to come stroke your ego and make you feel better. Get in the game. Start living in a climate of radical encouragement. Say, what can I do to turn my home into a place of radical encouragement where I'm saying to my wife, hey, God's in this thing. Let's act bold. And the wife is saying, you know, go for it. Husband, God is with you. And the kids are saying to the parents, we're believing God for what God is going to do in your lives. And the parents are saying, God's got an awesome future plan for you. Imagine what it would be like to be in a home with that kind of climate. Imagine what it would be like to work in that climate. That's how you get life in the zone. That's step two. Number one, you say, God, I'm here. Count me in. God likes that. He says, crank it up. Turn it up. Act bold. Act courageous. Don't get very far away from the book, and I'm with you.